One thing that people have tended to assume is that we can simply take a kind of commonsensical understanding of what is an immigrant. But it is no more straightforward to say what is an immigrant than it is to say what is a native. Welcome to Free Thoughts. I'm Trevor Burrus. And I'm Aaron Powell. Joining us today is Chandran Kukathas, professor and dean of the School of Social Sciences at Singapore Management University. His new book is Immigration and Freedom. Welcome to Free Thoughts. Thank you. Glad to be here. So your book could be said to be both, in some sense, sort of complexify the questions of immigration and, and nationalization in the sense that it challenges the definitions of things that many people might think are kind of obvious. And in some sense, maybe even simplify in that it focuses the questions on on freedom, um, as the as the title of your book says. So, in that vein, uh, for the first question, what is an immigrant? So, this turns out to be a surprisingly complicated question. Both governments and researchers, for example, who are people interested in that uh, question, tend to offer a similar but um, equally misleading definitions. For the for most governments, they take an immigrant to be someone who is outside of his or her country of nationality for a year or longer. Uh, that's the UN definition of an immigrant. Uh, most researchers also use this. But the, the difficulty comes, uh, firstly, in trying to figure out why a year What's so special about one year? Well, it turns out that this is simply a definition of convenience because there's no reason why you couldn't make it six months, although then you'd have a lot more immigrants, or you can make it a day and everyone who is a tourist would be an immigrant. Or you can make it 10 years, in which case, you know, only those who are really coming to settle are immigrants. It's also complicated because uh, it assumes that we can neatly divide people into people who are, let's say, natives and people who are immigrants. But that turns out to be not so obvious because as a matter of simple historical fact, um, immigrants have become natives and natives have become immigrants. People move from one place to another and they're regarded by some people as immigrants. There are disputes over who's to count as a native or a national because all of this is simply a matter of what the law says. It's it's not as if the law picks out some particular characteristic that makes you a, uh, an immigrant or, for that matter, picks out a particular set of characteristics that makes you a native or a national. All of these things have constantly changed and the definition has changed mostly as a result of political imperatives. People want to keep people in or keep people out. People want to remove people from classifications in uh, the country as a particular member or as a national. So the whole thing is kind of fraught with difficulty. And essentially, the definition of an immigrant could be almost anything you want it to be. Why isn't intent part of this definition? Because it seems like just, you know, the, our kind of common sense definition is, say, a tourist is someone who comes to a country and plans to go back. And you could be a tourist for a few months. It can be, you know, you can be a tourist for quite a long time. 
an immigrant is someone who comes with the intent to stay, but nothing you just discussed, what you discussed was about time and other things, but not about intent. It's a very good good question. So one of the problems with trying to determine who is or is not an immigrant on the basis of intent is simply that people don't always do what they intend to do. Um, for example, many people might arrive in a country for a purpose of a short-term visit and end up staying for a lot longer for you know, a, a great variety of reasons from being offered a job to, to falling in love to uh, finding that they're not able to, to leave for some particular reason, like during a pandemic, for example. But that's that's a relatively, uh, you know, minor uh, reason because not a lot of people end up, um, you know, staying or acting contrary to their original intentions. Most people who come as tourists remain tourists and leave. But there is a kind of category of people for whom this is a slightly more tricky case. That's to take um, the example of students. And there are literally hundreds of thousands of students uh, from all over the U.S. who've traveled overseas to study, whether it's high school students doing years abroad or um, American students who are um, going off to take other degrees in other countries. How do you count a student who's going to be in a country for more than a year? Now, in the U.K., they found this to be a problem because... Um, by the government's statistical calculations, anyone who's in the country for more than 12 months has got to be counted as, counted as an immigrant. They may be intending to be there only temporarily, but the, the rules that they've got for counting people says, well, they've got to count as immigrants. The UK government has gone back and forth on this debating whether students should be counted as immigrants or students should be counted as visitors. Uh, and depending on uh, what you decide, you'll get you'll get different figures. From the point of view of governments, it all depends on what is the aim of your policy. If your aim is to reduce immigration, then to show you're successful, you want to try to prove that the immigration numbers are low. If you want to try to encourage more immigration, you might might want to say, look, you know, all these people count as immigrants, so this is our success. So there's, there's no straightforward way of simply saying, well, we'll just count people by their intentions because we can't say that their intentions explain what they're going to do. And we don't even know how to ourselves determine which sort of intentions are relevant. How new is all this stuff? And by all this stuff, I mean, well, borders to some extent, passports, travel restrictions, citizenship. I mean, you, you cite a bunch of interesting historical examples, such as the British Empire, uh, say, until I think 1922, where it seemed like you could pretty much live anywhere if you were a member of the British Empire. But even then, the nation state itself is not terribly old if you look at world history and all this idea of borders and stuff. So when, when did these really become sort of salient political issues? That's also quite a complicated uh, question because there have been travel restrictions of one sort or another for centuries, if not millennia. Um, communities have always imposed some sort of restrictions on people's movement. Although I think historically it's more likely that communities were worried about people leaving rather than they coming in because labor was a, a scarce commodity and so you know you were reluctant 
to let people go, particularly if they were able-bodied. But in the 20th century, I think, uh, is when you start really seeing much more systematic controls on uh, on movement. It's when the passport becomes a much more important document. Much of this has, was as a result of European uh, governments wanting to control the movement of refugee flows, particularly after the after the First World War. And it was at that point that they started wanting to to keep people out in in Europe. But you mentioned the the British Empire. That was another case because the the way in which the uh, the British understood their empire was that it was essentially um, uh, a realm within which everybody was a subject of the crown. And as subjects, they were all equal. And so, therefore, they had the equal opportunity and right to travel not only within the empire beyond Britain, but also to travel into Britain. Now, as a practical matter, the uh, the British did allow countries like Australia and South Africa to control their own uh, immigration policies. But otherwise, everyone who was a member of the British Empire uh, who was a subject of the crown could travel, um, you know, across anywhere and to Britain itself. There were still some restrictions, um, but this was, these were not of a general kind. There were things that they had in place to, for example, prevent people moving if they were disabled uh, or when they were at one point worried about too many people of color coming in they introduced the Coloured Seamen's Act to stop sailors who came to Britain, you know, basically stopping and staying. But in principle, everyone could move everywhere. It's not until really the 1960s that Britain really starts to tighten up on uh, its immigration controls within the empire. And that it had to do by essentially defining people who were up until then British nationals and recognized as such, had to start defining these people as no longer British. So due to these complexities that we've been discussing, and you also you go through what an immigrant can be, and you also list at least 20 definitions of what a native might be, um, how does this all end up why we should – essentially your book sort of reframing the questions of immigration around – the getting away from these simple concepts and thinking that this is obvious. Cause I think that's an interesting part of your book. It, I think people think they intuitively know what a native is or they intuitively know what an immigrant is, but they really don't. Um, and so that means that we have to reframe the, the basic question about immigration, correct? Yes, I, I think so. Uh, I think one thing that people have tended to assume is that we can simply take a kind of commonsensical uh, understanding of uh, of what is an immigrant. But it is no more straightforward to say what is an immigrant than it is to say uh, what is a native. And one good way of understanding this is to think of the example that I've given of uh, the British Empire, where everyone was, in fact, until the 1960s, anyone who was a part of that uh, empire was regarded as essentially a British national. But if you took the um, American case, you'll see, you know, going across the, the span of American history, that the definition of an American native or national changes 
constantly all the way up until the um, middle of the, the 20th century. To give you, you know, just one example from my book, um, a woman who was a native-born American white woman could lose her American nationality for marrying a foreigner as, uh, you know, as recently as about 100 years ago. This law was changed just around about that time, but it still meant that if she married a, uh, a foreigner who was not white, she would lose her American nationality, even if her uh, she could trace her ancestors back to the Mayflower. She would lose her American nationality. So uh, all kinds of things have affected the definition of an American national. Native Americans weren't counted as natives until the 1930s or 40s. Um, so if you think about it in this way, you suddenly realize that immigration control for a long time has been not just about keeping some people out, but it's really been about deciding who belonged in the first place. And that is something that continues to be contested. What's the role of the state in this? Because if we take a step back and we, we're not talking about immigrants, but we're talking about communities and belongings to different groups. We all are members of a lot of different groups, and we all recognize how fuzzy those borders are. So you're a member of a church, and there are some people who are devoted attendees, but there are other people who drift in you know, just occasionally on major holidays, and we, we recognize that there's a fuzziness about membership in that church based on those criteria. We're all members of many different organizations and communities. We see, you know, you go to a place like New York City and each neighborhood has its own often very strong character, but we don't have borders between them and we recognize that people can be, you know, members of that community without being in it. And it seems like the thing that distinguishes the immigrant issue is the state needs to put a stamp on people for various purposes. And but then we we have a tendency to then import a lot of meaning into who the state decides to put a stamp on. So is this is this a uniquely like conceptual issue with immigration or is this that when the state enters the picture it creates all of these conceptual problems on top of something that was, you know, complicated but relatively easy to deal with prior. Uh, I would want to go so far as to say it was easy to deal with before then, but it certainly has added a, a layer of complexity. If you take, for example, um, the United States, uh, and you know, here again, I'm uh, I'm generalizing over a very diverse uh, history over you know several hundred years. Let's take say the 19th century. Uh, for many communities, whether or not um, someone who was at one point an outsider is regarded as a citizen or a member of the community would be determined by those people who lived in the community uh, who would make a judgment about whether that person was someone of good standing, whether they were someone who was now you know, eligible for uh, social services, who was uh, you know, eligible for membership of the churches and, and so on, because for those communities, the way that person 
was judged was based on that person's membership or interaction with people in the in the community. But of course, in the 19th century, at the same time, there were national forces at, at work where there were people who were already uh, concerned about immigration. At that point, it was primarily immigration from uh, from Ireland or other parts of Southern Europe. Uh, and they had a strong uh, you know, argument to put to say that people should be excluded. And you know, political pressures led to federal governments at various times trying to clamp down on uh, immigration, but also then to try to deport people who are already here uh, in the United States. But what they found was that many of the community simply resisted or didn't take any notice of, uh, of federal regulations or demands because they already had these people who were active members of their communities. So what you got was something like the conflict you, you find now between you know, the federal government uh, under you know, one administration and so-called sanctuary cities. The cities say, no, no, we, we want these people federal government is trying to say, well, we decide whether or not these people are you know, justifiably to be allowed into the country or recognized in this way. Many of the cities are saying, well, we simply don't buy that. This is an old story. It's not something that's peculiar to the present. It was going on, just take the American case, uh, all the time. And of course, there were people who were smuggled in and who who had to go into hiding and so on, as they do now. But there's always been a tension between federal regulation and the regulations of states and of cities and of communities. So when people think about immigration control, the, usually the first thing they think about is the border. And you hear this in America, America all the time. And of course, we just had a president who spent a lot of time talking about controlling the border. Um, but a big point of your book is that this is a well it's a it's even defining a border but but this is not the most important form of immigration control even though it's the one that many states focus on heavily and especially in America in recent years so if it's not the border then where where is immigration enforcement where does that occur well i think this is a really a very very important point because if you think about the number of people who who cross the border each year, it's about, in the United States, somewhere between 360 and 380 million border crossings. Of course, many of these are the same people. But even if you just think about the number of people from outside the United States, non-Americans, entering the U.S. every year, it's more than 70 million people every year who cross the border. Now, these people aren't all immigrants, which is the, the earlier point that I was trying to make. Many of them come in because they're, you know, um, itinerant workers. Some of them come in because they're tourists. Some of them are just, you know, flight attendants. Um, but what border control, or rather, what immigration control is mostly about, is not controlling um, people crossing the border. It's about controlling what they do once they've crossed the border. You know, most countries want lots of tourists because they people who come in and spend money is good for the local economy, and many parts of the country depend upon these people. Businesses want uh, um, people coming in to trade and exchange. What immigration control is primarily about 
is controlling what people do when they've entered a country. And for the most part, it's about controlling the labor market. They don't want people coming in and working in a country. But they also don't want them to come in and say, you know, go to college unauthorized. They don't want them to come in and set up a business. They don't want them to come in and buy a property. There are all kinds of things they want to stop outsiders from doing. But the only way of uh, managing this then is to make sure you regulate people inside because otherwise, you know, your colleges will uh, admit students, your businesses will trade with people, employers will employ people. So most immigration control ends up being the regulation of people within a society to stop them from engaging with immigrants or would-be immigrants or just outsiders. Well, that's the interesting uh, fact on this when people think about immigration controls being imposed upon immigrants, uh, people who are not uh, of your country. But it's if you if you think about it, if no one wanted to go to a place because no one would hire you, no one would date you, uh, you would not be able to get a, rent an apartment just because people did not want to interact with you. Maybe something like North Korea, um, although I think North Koreans yes, probably want probably to not allowed, yeah. interact with <laughs> outsiders more than the government lets them. <laughs> yeah. But if, if no one wanted to, then you would just – that would quote-unquote solve an immigration problem Yeah, yeah. because no they, one would go there. Exactly. No, they, the, So the conflict over immigration is actually um, in a way kind of obviously – not a conflict between natives and immigrants or would-be immigrants. Uh, it's a conflict among natives. It's among nationals because some people really want the immigrants for one reason or another and other people don't. Um, so immigration control is really about some people within a country telling their fellow citizens what they can and cannot do. And in this case, immigration control is about, if you took the case of the United States, some Americans saying to other Americans, we don't think you should have the freedom to employ who you choose, to admit who you choose, to trade with who you choose, to um, let a property to who you choose. We're telling you what you can and cannot do, and you cannot do these things if it's with somebody from outside the United States. That's what immigration control is for the most part. Because as, I, as you've already noticed, there are always people who are willing uh, and interested, in some cases even desperate, to engage with people from uh, from other parts of the world. But couldn't we make that same claim about basically any law? You know, I mean, any law is there are people who want to do something. So that, you know, might be smoke marijuana or it might be steal someone's money or it might be stab someone or it might be use the wrong kind of light bulbs in their house and other people have said you know we don't think that you should get to do that and so we're going to use the state to stop you and and then enforcing that is going to require some sort of monitoring or interference in the lives of even the people who don't want to do it because you've got to check people's houses for the right kind of light bulbs. You've got to patrol the streets against stabbings and so on. Um, so is there – this doesn't seem necessarily like this is unique to immigration. You've just kind of described the way that laws work in a pluralistic society where not everyone's tastes and desires align perfectly. 
I think that's a, it's a very good point. Um, it doesn't hold equally for all the examples you've, uh, you've mentioned. For example, the, the case of, uh, uh, someone not being permitted to stab somebody else. I think there's probably not much disagreement among the, the population about whether this should be something that is uh, prohibited. Um, if you took the case of uh, light bulbs, there may be, you know, a bit more uh, pushback because there are many people who think, no, no, I should be able to, uh, um, you know, make that decision for myself. But, you know, maybe many people will accept that there's a good public policy justification for some kind of uh, regulation. When it comes to, you know, other things like, you know, who I should be free to marry, who I should be um, free to associate with, uh, what I should be able to do with my own body. There, I think you've got a much more substantial um, disagreement. And, you know, I think there many people want, want to say, particularly in countries like the United States, well, you know, I think you should leave me to make up my mind for myself on this on this question. So at this point, the debate then becomes one of, well, what are the third-party effects of um, uh, of my engaging in some sort of behavior like this, whether it's deciding on light bulbs or uh, engaging with others in terms of employment practices and so on. That's where, you know, the, the issue really gets going. And immigration um, is something that falls into, you know, this kind of band of uh, of issues. On the principal side, I think someone could you know, quite reasonably say, well, um, why should anyone tell me who I can and cannot employ? Um, they can't tell me that with respect to American citizens, because, uh, you know, um, I should be able to employ whoever I think is most suited for the job. Why is it different with respect to someone from outside? If that's the person I want to hire because he's cheaper or because he's smarter or he's quicker. Why shouldn't I be able to as a matter of principle? Some people will concede, no, well, it depends on the impact on the rest of the economy. Well, um, there are a couple of uh, things to be said here. One is, well, why am I responsible for um, making the economy better for for my for everybody else. If my aim is to do better for myself, that's you know um, something that's no part of my concern. I mean, I could, for example, just close up business, and that would be bad for the economy. But no one's going to say I'm obliged to uh, run a business. Why is it I'm allowed? I'm obliged to run a business, you know, and make less of a profit because you think that I should not be able to, you know, hire certain sorts of people. So, you know, there is that kind of principled argument that you could make. But if someone were to come around and say, no, well, you know, the, the problem is that we want you to, you know, to run a business, but we don't want you to hire non-Americans, say, because we think you should hire Americans because this would be better for other Americans, um, then we can have an argument about, A, whether this is okay in principle to force Americans to uh, run their business in, in this way. And then secondly, we can ask, is it really beneficial to other Americans to force some Americans to adopt particular hiring practices? Uh, 
and that's the you know the more uh, if you like the economic side of the question. We can we can independently assess it, but I'm kind of interested in that first question: Why is it that you want to say that um, you know I as an employer have to look out for the rest of the economy if I'm going to operate in this particular way? Um, but at the same time, if I chose not to operate at all, I don't need to worry about the economy. It seems like a, a very strange, you know, um, imposition. It's it's interesting because on this view, which would strike because nationalism is pretty popular now around the world, and it's it's always had its sort of big moments in human history, and and here we could say, well, we just sort of don't really need this concept of nations and citizens and nationalism, and on one view of your argument, it could be that there is no real argument against immigration that would not also apply to newborn children of natives within a country because a, a baby boom can, you know, let's say there's a baby boom and it could displace older workers eventually when those workers become old enough, old enough to work, those babies become old enough to work. Babies could have different cultures. They could have different cultural attitudes. So it seems that, it, you know, it, but some people will be very uncomfortable with, Saying this, with believing that no, like babies of natives are are categorically different than immigrants, um, and and would really resist that that analogy. Yeah, that's a very good point um, because you know historically, governments all around the world, the U.S., Singapore, China, Germany, have all over the uh, centuries tried to control their populations uh, and they've tried to control them both by controlling uh, movement, and that is to say immigration, and by controlling uh, birth. And they've tried to con- when they try to control it by birth, uh, they've tried either to um, encourage people to have more children because they've wanted to increase the size of the population or they've tried to discourage people um, from having more children. Think of China's one-child policy, for example, uh, in order to reduce the number of uh, people in the country. So immigration control and um, birth control, um, if I can use that term, are two uh, equally prevalent methods used by governments in history to try to control the population. The interesting thing about it is that it's actually never worked. Um, it's very, very difficult to control people moving. It's also very, very difficult to control um, the decisions that people make about um, whether or not to have children or how many children to have, whether you give them incentives to have six or seven children, uh, as Germany tried for you know, for a long time, or whether you try to discourage them from having more than one or two children, as, again, many countries, including China, have tried to do. So these things are all of a piece when it comes to uh, government attempts to control the population. It's not really much different. In different periods of history, you'll see uh, different uh, uh, methods adopted. And it's all because governments want to make some judgment as to whether there are too many or too few people. We have a lot of, obviously, arguments about immigration, and we take a lot of approaches 
to them that are, you know, so we, as you're doing, we try to frame the issue conceptually and tease out distinctions. Sometimes we make, you know, strictly, we've had uh, Brian Kaplan on to talk about open borders and he takes a, you know, almost entirely just economic you know, economic growth approach. We we shoot down counter arguments like Trevor just did with the babies counterexample. But sometimes I wonder how much these are all just effectively window dressing on people have gut instincts about others. Um and and so, you know, and and part of the part of the growth of civilization, part of the process of becoming civilized is is you know expanding the circle of those we're willing to consider not other you know so we started in very small tribes and then we branched out and we branch out and we branch out and we bring more people into our sense of community and that now it feels like for a lot of people due to the you know the existence of of states that draw borders, they've kind of expanded their sense of other to these these lines drawn on a map and then stopped. Um, but that ultimately, that's what the argument is about, is, is just this kind of gut sense of like, I don't like people who I feel like are different from me, and difference begins on the other side of this imaginary line. And so do you think, do you think that is at least a large part, what's motivating a lot of this? And if so, how do we address that from within the tool set that, say, you're using or the economists use where we're kind of arguing it in a different way? Well, firstly, I think you're absolutely right about the uh, uh, this, this aspect of our nature, our, our inclination to you know, classify some people as outsiders and others as... Uh, as insiders to say certain people make up the other. And I think this is something that's, you know, quite well established in the, in the literature on, on social psychology, which tells us how easily we form uh, bonds with other people and regard them as a part of our in-group and then exclude others. I mean, um, you know, social psychologists have done some very simple experiments where they just say, you know, tell people you're on the blue team and the other people are on the green team. And within a matter of hours, people on the blue team bond, even though they had nothing in common before then, and now start to disparage and genuinely feel that there's something wrong with or bad about the green team. Now, we can say that this is um, almost irrational, but we can't deny the existence of this uh, element in our psychology. We just have this. Um, But what I think the experiment reveals is how easily this sentiment is created by just defining a certain group or entity or collection of people as having this characteristic of being a part of a group with the capacity to exclude or disparage others. And I think an awful lot of uh, the debate about immigration um, becomes a debate of this kind about, you know, why we need to keep others out depends upon um, taking advantage of this element of our nature, our tendency to to want to bond with some people and exclude others uh, to the point maybe of finding 
uh, others to be not just you know unattractive but maybe even maybe even wicked because a part of this psychological process just involves this and i think people in in politics when they're trying to find an advantage what they need to do is to find people and tell them something about themselves that makes them feel good and then find them some kind of uh, source of opposition or anxiety um, and this is a tactic that further strengthens you know the uh, uh, very very you know in a sense artificial bonds that people have but for political actors this becomes a great asset because you can really then start to manipulate people um, by appealing to this particular sentiment now in some ways this is something that's also gone on not just you know in these little experiments or even in something small like a, a neighborhood or a village community but it can extend to the extent of uh, encompassing nations and over the courses of their history you know nations have been built by political leaders telling people that they belong together in some way and they have an identity and they have uh, a sensibility that makes them different and then makes others uh, outsiders who should be either kept out or only allowed in on a very very limited basis and you know in our nature we're inclined to to buy this story and i think this will always be the case uh, i i don't see this stopping what i want to do in this uh, argument that i'm putting is not so much to say to people don't be like that um it's rather to say to them okay you know try to understand that this is what it is you know it's not something that has some kind of deeper reality uh, these attachments that we formed are not irrelevant or unimportant um but they're not somehow as fundamental and foundational as you think and a lot of it is the result of your having been manipulated in various ways by peoples by states by organizations that want you to see the world in a particular way i think that's as much as one can can really do well, this is you know the most there's a lot of arguments against immigration and, and you address them in the book, the economic argument, um, you know, do they lower wages? Seemingly not, not much, but the, the other argument that really resonates with people is even without the nation state, uh, the people around me due to shared history, culture, uh, we have some things that we share, some mores, some values, the things of freedom that really matter, for example, in America. And that if you let a bunch of people in uh, who don't believe that, then those things would go away. I, I mean, and that would be true for any country. And you could see that in different places where sometimes really mass migration happens very quickly and everything changes quick, changes quite a bit there. Um, is that a valid concern or should we just say you're being irrational about your team and, you know, let people in because uh, people want to interact with them and, and it's good for freedom and it will be good for your country? Mm -hmm. uh, I don't think it's an irrational um, thought, but it's also a th uh, an idea that actually doesn't have much evidence to back it. We, we just don't have any examples where uh, a mass 
influx of uh, of people has radically changed a society to the extent that the the values that were dominant have uh, somehow been been squashed or eliminated this this one example that i consider uh in the book of uh a massive influx of immigrants with radically uh different uh cultural values and understanding um and this is the the case of germany in the uh 1990s and 2000s you'll recall that uh, after you know 50 years of uh, of communist rule germany was reunified uh, in 1991 and at that point uh about 17 million germans suddenly uh, or east germans suddenly became germans or you know uh, many of them literally moved to to west germany uh, physically moved you know in the millions now at this time germany uh, not only saw the virtual migration of uh, uh, essentially about uh, a, a, a number that was about a third of its original population it also took in a massive number of refugees because it suddenly decided to define itself as a, a migrant welcoming, welcoming nation so there was a massive influx of people from turkey as well as from east germany in the east german case they were all essentially people who'd been brought up under a half a century of communism had no capitalist uh, sensibilities no uh, attitudes that were favorable uh, to capitalism germany is doing okay uh, no one would claim that uh, germany has collapsed and that its cultural values have been transformed no one's going to say that there've been no problems but there's really just no evidence to suggest that somehow this massive inf- influx has dramatically changed uh, german culture german society uh, german thinking if you took a country like the united states on the other hand the 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 change as a result of uh, immigration has been slower but the numbers have been even greater over the course of uh, more than a century when you've had people move in the millions from uh, southern europe at a time when uh, americans were substantially against immigration from that part of europe there was um migration from uh, mexico and latin america there was migration from uh, from uh, many parts of uh, of asia you know all of which has transformed america in terms of its um you know physical appearance if you look at the people who are there but if you look at what you might call you know american values or the american ethos it doesn't look like it's changed all that much um maybe there's a greater appreciation or tolerance of diversity but but other than that it's hard to see you know that the america of uh, of the founding uh, the values that were you know embodied in the constitution have somehow been drastically undermined by a massive influx of cultures from from all over the world so i think the concern is not uh something that expresses an incoherent thought 
but there's just no evidence that is just a gen that is actually a genuine worry. We, we don't know of a case where this has been a problem. On the whole, people you know move because they want to, unless they're refugees, uh, and they assimilate because that's the most rational thing to do. You know, if you want to make your way in a new place, the best way to do it is to adapt to the place that you find yourself in. Of course, there will be some people who want to keep to themselves. Um, there are Jewish communities in New York. There are the Amish in Pennsylvania. But on the whole, these are the these are the exceptions. This, as you're saying this, it reminds me of um, at one point in the book, you you talk about how it's it's question begging. You say to defend the definition of distinguishing a national from an immigrant on the ground that it serves to protect the interests of nationals. And there seems to be something I've always found this argument about we need to protect our values um, from from waves of incoming immigrants who don't share them really interesting because it seems to go wrong in in two ways. The first is this question begging nature, which is that in any sufficiently large and diverse country, there's going to be lots of values. And so, you know, I can argue sitting here in, you know, in my home in Northern Virginia, that someone in, you know, rural Mississippi, perhaps, has a value system more different from mine than someone, you know, in another nation might, but we don't seem to worry about that. Again, it seems like we conceptually stop at borders. But the other one is, this always struck me as a really, an argument made from kind of provincialism in in the sense that one of the things you find when you you know get to know people in other parts of the world or travel to other parts of the world is that they're far less foreign than you might imagine and and that you know we're much more similar and that the values are are quite similar um and so it seems like an argument made by people who haven't i guess gotten out much yeah i think i think that's that's true but you know, even to the extent that um, people are different uh, in different parts of the world, in certainly in countries like the United States or Britain or Australia, there's already sufficient diversity within um, you know, these countries that welcoming people from any part of the world will not mean having them come into a place where there's no one who shares um their values, or let's say, you know, particular religious convictions or particular cultural practices. There's already so much diversity there. And a country like America was, in a sense, founded on this because it was founded on a conviction that um, the most important form of diversity then, religious diversity, should be tolerated. Uh, and... Uh, in a sense, if you took a country like the United States, I would say that its most fundamental value is uh, an appreciation of individual freedom to you know, follow their own paths, to live by the values that, uh, that they themselves think are important. What most American citizens, I think, would resent is someone else telling them what kinds of church they should go to, what kinds of ethical views they should hold, what kind of cultural norms they should accept. Now, if that's the case, um, if you're going to exclude people on the grounds that they don't fit the cultural values of your of your country, well, um, you're in a sense 
betraying the the actual ethos of your own country to the extent that it is a country like the UK or the United States or Australia, which says, look, you know, people are free to live their own lives, live by their own convictions. And we appreciate that this is a society that has, um, you know, East Coast liberals and Mormons in Utah and, uh, um, you know, the Amish in Pennsylvania and, uh, you know, people with a whole range of different attitudes to how one should live one's life. Now, many listeners at this point would be saying the elephant in the room is being ignored and, and discussing sort of the advent of higher immigration controls kind of throughout the 20th century. And that the reason, one of the big reasons for that and the concern that we should have is the welfare state and the increased provision of services from the government, which are finite and can be used by and maybe and abused by immigrants who maybe want to come to a country for the purpose of getting health care when they hadn't paid taxes on it for for decades or their whole life. Uh, is that is that something that changes the equation now from looking at the nation state in some sort of Lockean sense and saying, okay, freedom of association is presumed, to looking at the modern nation state and saying things are different now? Um. I don't think it really does make a, a big difference for the simple reason that um, there's absolutely no reason why you need to supply anyone who comes into a country with welfare rights. You don't do it with tourists, for example. You expect them to have uh, uh, their own medical insurance or make provision for themselves. You don't do this with uh, the, you know, hundreds of thousands of people who come in as students unless they make some provision you know, through their tuition and so on for their own uh, uh, health care. Um, and uh, I can say for myself as an example, when I moved to London in 2007 as, uh, as a professor at the London School of Economics, I had uh, a working visa for five years which simply said you know, not eligible for uh, for welfare. Uh, I mean, I was paying taxes, but mind you, by this stage. So, you know, I had access to many public facilities, including um, you know, the National Health Service, but I had no right to, um, for example, go on uh, um, uh, unemployment benefits. If I lost my job, I would not be entitled to to public provision, and this is quite common, you know, all all over the world. And, and I don't see any reason why um, this should be an obstacle to uh, allowing people to move. Now, I would understand if people wanted to make an exception, say, for those who would arrived in the country as as refugees and uh, um, you know were in such bad shape that. You felt a kind of need to to take care of them, though even then the, the simplest thing to do would be simply to give them an entitlement to work, and for the most part they would simply take care of themselves by uh, by you know finding gainful employment. It would be a very very small proportion of any population then that would be in need of uh, uh, of welfare benefits. But I, I don't see that uh, it's a problem for those who who want to move. In your final chapter before the epilogue on which is on, on freedom, you you start by talking. Or in the beginning, you talk about control, and you 
to take the famous passage from Proudhon about being governed, which the first part is, to be governed is to be watched, inspected, spied upon, directed, law-driven, numbered, regulated, enrolled, indoctrinated, preached at, controlled, checked, estimated, valued, censored, and commanded. And in a book about immigration controls, people might regard this as a little hyperbolic to put uh, this famous uh, anarchist uh, statement up front when we're talking about controlling the border. So, so why, why did you go with that passage? How does that sort of like frame the, the general argument of your book? The reason is basically that, you know, one of the arguments that was often put to me when I made the point that immigration controls mean controls on us, not on outsiders, but controls on us. Many people have said to me, well, you know, that's true, but, you know, what's the big deal? Because after all, we are already controlled in so many ways. And, uh, you know, we're subject to to regulations, whether it's in the uh, the labor market or in our, you know, medical insurance choices, or it's, uh, you know, whenever we go through an airport. And, and one of the things that I wanted to do in, and say in the book is, yes, well, you know, maybe this is the time for us to start looking a little bit more critically at all the ways in which we are controlled. Um, you know, one of the reasons I think we so readily accept the implications of immigration control is that we've already decided to um, allow ourselves to be controlled in so other way, so many other ways to the extent that we've simply internalized all these norms. We don't realize that we're, we're being controlled. We don't even ask the question, uh, is this you know, defensible in any terms, whether in principle or, you know, for the, for the consequences? So this was, you know, a dramatic way of beginning my response to that particular challenge. But there was a further um, part uh, um, of my point that I, you know, I'd like to, uh, to draw to your attention, and that is that one of the things about uh, getting used to being controlled is getting used to seeing other people being controlled because um, you've not only got to have to accept that happening with you, but, you know, if you see it happening all around you to other people, you're going to have to rationalize this away. And I think we can see this uh, with immigration very clearly because, you know, um, when we see particularly dramatic pictures of uh, the the victims of immigration control, whether it's uh, um, people who've been deported, many of them wrongfully, or people who have been imprisoned. Um, and, and one of the things I point out in my book is that, you know, at any given time, there are about, uh, you know, 4,000 uh, Americans who've been wrongly imprisoned for what were mistakenly thought to be immigration violations, but as a result of the system of control, and this is what happens. But to the extent that, you know, we become used to this, you know, for ourselves, we also get used to justifying these sorts of controls on other people. Uh, and sometimes these controls on other people can be even harsher. I mean, if you think about, you know, all of the, the violations of human rights of both Americans and uh, immigrants, that uh, that um, the uh, 
uh, immigration control and enforcement, ICE, have been responsible for, you'll suddenly see that, you know, we, we are excusing an awful lot of control. So I really wanted to bring this to the fore. And that's essentially how I uh, I end my book, you know, that to, to say, you know, what kind of uh, of people do you have to become to be okay with being controlled? And I want to say, well, you have to be the kind of people who in the end don't really care about freedom that much, even if you think you do. Um, you'll actually lose that capacity to appreciate that you've lost some freedom. So you're right, you know, the Proudhon passage is, uh, is, you know, is very dramatic, and he, he was an anarchist. Um, but I think he, he has a point uh, to make, and you can only make that point uh, in that way if you really want to get at uh, you know, something important that's happening and has happened. Thank you for listening. If you enjoy Free Thoughts, make sure to rate and review us in Apple Podcasts or in your favorite podcast app. Free Thoughts is produced by Landry Ayers. If you'd like to learn more about libertarianism, visit us on the web at www.libertarianism.org.